0: I have not seen you since the Sydney show. I know, it's, yeah. yeah. So and we left that as a bit of a dangler actually as I recall because you were talking oh. about a book um, <laughs> and then everyone went, oh, you know what, just too tired, let's do it another time.
1: When you say everyone went, <laughs> uh, you went. I think, I, I think <laughs> me in the audience, I can say. I just plowed into this book that I'm reading um, <laughs> called Monsters, an Audience Dilemma by a woman called Claire Dederer. and I um, <laughs> read out a page of it to you and you were on stage and you are like, ow. I'm like, well, that didn't land. <laughs> but it was actually, yeah, it was a bit of an hour and a half and, a live show. <laughs> it was an absolute cracking climactic moment for the show, right? Like just like impenetrable page of prose <laughs> over like, significant kind of thorny philosophical issue, entire audience, and sales goes, ow, and that's a wrap.
0: Bada bing. I am interested in this because it feels like it's a theme that you and I have repeatedly come back to over the almost 10 years or so of this podcast. So right. So now that I'm, I've got full energy, hit me.
1: Okay. So it is indeed a book about whether it's okay to enjoy works of art created by People who are monsters. So it's that badly behaved artist genius kind of idea. So that's why I picked it up. I think I read like a review of it or something in the paper, and I thought, "Ooh, this is really in my in my little area." And it's like a I think it's a best selling book. It's by an American woman, Claire Dederer, and she is a, a a film writer by trade. And so she starts with the films of Roman Polanski and of Woody Allen. And she's kind of asking herself whether her instinct to be ashamed of really loving Roman Polanski as a filmmaker is a fair one or not. And I kind of like I went through the first two chapters, which are Polanski and Woody Allen, and then I kind of got – I felt like the book wasn't really quite getting anywhere. So I kind of put it down for a bit and then I picked it up again and I really got – really back into it when she starts looking at her own early career as a film reviewer and her struggle to kind of like fit into the mould of like what um, acceptable art criticism is and, you know, um, the works that are, you know, broadly um, assumed by everybody to be genius and whether that's problematic. And she said that as a female film reviewer in what was at that time a fairly male-dominated field, she found herself trying to like adjust her own um, responses to fit in with the kind of prescribed framework of what is genius in filmmaking and what isn't. Oh. It's really interesting. And she describes this cup of tea that she had with a male colleague where she was talking about, I think, yeah, Woody Allen or something. And this guy was just saying, look, you've got to put you've got to put your personal feelings aside. Like this is just, you know, objectively genius filmmaking. And she was like, Yeah, I don't know really an objective thing to be honest so where did she come did she
0: come down on the central question of is it all right to like art cred by- i
1: think where she's going and i haven't finished it yet but like what i'm finding interesting about it is that she's questioning the whole concept of objectivity in your responses to works of art and yeah. also she's questioning the um objectivity of assessment of people as genius and what that entitles them to do. Mm. And the most interesting part of it, I think, is that she looks at what flexibility we've traditionally accorded geniuses and asked whether their genius is dependent on flexibility that we give them like so what she's saying is like um maybe their kind of warped personalities are the seed of their creativity or maybe it's that once you get used to being allowed to behave like a total dickhead you um you start to incorporate that behaviour into your sense of self-worth or like your sense of genius Yeah because you know? there's a freedom it's a real chicken and egg. yeah.
0: with it so you know because obviously if you want to create great art it's got to come from a place of truth which means you've got to be kind of free in the creation of it right? and so it's kind of a bit rich to say okay we'll be free in the creation of your art but then actually in your real life you've got to put some boundaries on your behaviour Yeah
1: but she also looks at the kind of the, the, the social reality of who gets to, like, fuck around and be a dickhead, you know, like because and this is where there's a sort of an interesting gender lens as well because, like, she looks at, you know, art monsters through history and what they've got away with. Right. <laughs> or, like, you know, and 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 would, for instance, a female artist be able to disport themselves like Picasso did or, you know, Hemingway, you know, and she also looks at how much of this sort of bad behaviour is kind of the cost of it is carried by women in the lives of these male geniuses. Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, it reminds me of this little, like, bit that I remember from I think it's one of Helen Garner's diaries where she, um, because obviously her last diary is substantially about being married to a kind of genius male novelist and having to sort of, you know, leave the house during business hours to do her own writing so that she wouldn't sort of disrupt the genius of her husband, which really shits me to tears. But, like, she told this little story, I think, in one of her diaries about, I think it was Stravinsky, a famous composer anyway, who um, used to work up in the office and then come downstairs for lunch and his wife and children were allowed to attend and dine with him but only if they said nothing? I think um, Garner's <laughs> friend Drusilla Majeska
0: wrote a book right, called that, Stravinsky's yeah. Lunch. Look, the question about whether you can em- enjoy something in a purely objective sense, I've tried to test this and I might have even said this mm. on the podcast before by trying to rewatch watch Louis, which I absolutely loved ah, that show yeah. and then yeah. all the stuff came out about Louis C.K. Yeah. And I felt because I was such a fan of his and such a fan of that show, I felt kind of like I'd been made a fool of because I felt like, well, the way you write and the way your show is and all the issues it's about, I feel like you kind of get humanity and what people are like. And then actually what it's turned out is that, you've acted like a bit of a dickhead. Having said that, acting like a bit of a dickhead is also part of humanity. So,
1: so you found that when you went back to watch
0: Louie. I, um, couldn't- I couldn't separate looking at Louie from thinking about that I just felt a little bit crushed. And so mm. I found it really difficult to watch this show with the same level of enjoyment. I could still see that it was a good show, but I couldn't just divorce my thoughts so about Louis C.K. from you know, just what had come out about him personally. Like you can't kind of, I think, watch someone on, on television if you know things or, or a film or whatever, if you know things about them, you can't just then view them. They're not like some just empty cipher that you kind of can project onto. Have you seen Tar?
1: Yeah, I have actually and we haven't talked about it. So,
0: I mean, it fits with this theme and I thought it was really interesting I don't I don't know that I could say that I liked it because it was such a challenging film on so many different levels but it is basically an art monster film but the thing that makes it really interesting is they've made the central protagonist this lesbian woman called Lydia Tarr Mm. who is she's got an EGOT you know the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony one of the few people on the planet that's got all those things she's a musical genius she's a conductor she's in demand around the world she's a composer you know blah 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 the whole works played by Kate Blanchett and as the film unfolds it's partly about her life, but then it also becomes clear that as sometimes people do when they get to this elite level, um, she's able to kind of, you know, hit on people and and Mm. sort of manipulate people to get her own way kind of thing and then it it unfolds from there. But there's a scene really early on. I mean the film, when I say I'm not sure if I could say I liked it, it certainly has stuck with me and I've thought about it a lot, which I think is always the mark of a good film. There's a scene early on where she's giving a lecture at Juilliard, and she's talking about Bark, and she asks this kid, um, "So, you know, some, what do you think about something to do with Bark?" And he goes, "I don't listen to Bark." And she's like, "Yeah, what?" And he goes, "Well, you know, as a I forget whatever his identity is, but as a person of this identity, I, I I reject a you know cisgender privileged white man, blah blah blah. However, yes. he described Bark, misogynistic, whatever." Um, and so she then does a very scathing intellectual decimation of the mm. argument that he's just mounted on the basis of Bach's mm. genius, which she kind of picks apart. In the process of doing it, which she's doing in front of a room of people, there's a power imbalance, right, because she's Lydia yep. Tarr and he's just this student. Yeah, she's, she's humiliating She has much him, yeah. more knowledge and, and experience and so yeah. she, she decimates him and humiliates him in the process. And then he eventually stands up and goes, you're a fucking bitch and mm. walks out. And so then it flips it again because then you're like, oh of course, because anytime you want to go a woman, you always gotta come back to the gendered yeah. takedown. Yeah. And so it's so there's so many layers of where you're conflicted watching it. And so I thought that was brilliant because it captures the real true nuance of human life, which mm. is that these issues are very complicated and, and hard to unpick um, and, and to kind of get through. So I thought it was a really interesting piece of work on that it's level. It's fascinating
1: actually because I've just listening to you talk, I think, um, you know, this question of identity and being able – like we use it as a decoder, right? Like you say, well, you know, you – your view is being is discounted because you you have this identity or it's you know enhanced because you have this identity and i suppose when you're experiencing a work of art whether it's music or film or um visual art or whatever part of it is it's sort of a the really great works of art communicate to you on a level of identity like you it's communicating who this person is or or you know what their experience is and how it speaks to you and how deeply it connects to you. So like I think it's indivisible from identity in a lot of ways but then identity is something that we use sort of like as a shortcut Like, and if someone is it turns out kind of lying about their identity, like so that's why with Louis C.K. you didn't like it so much anymore because part of your enjoyment, I'm guessing because this is like how I felt too, part of my enjoyment of that TV show was – Knowing that there was this guy who um, was sort of perceptive beyond what you would expect someone of his, like his calling card identity to have. And so you feel like you convinced me that you were, you know, this insightful person and actually you're a jerk and now I feel like I've been had, like I've been yeah. deceived in some way. Yeah, but then I guess then I'm back to thinking, okay, well, why why
0: is it judgy then that I feel like, well, I can't enjoy your art anymore because of the fact that we are all flawed human beings. And yeah. so why why should I hold Louis CK's
1: humanity against him? Right. But are we saying that there are no human rules of behaviour because – No, that suit. Like, I mean,
0: no, and I think in that case the behaviour was impacting other people Mm. um, as well. So there's there's that to it. I mean, I would I would argue that the reason great art connects. To and I on any in in relation to any form of identity is because it connects to something universal, not Mm. specific. Mm. So if we're talking about Bach, like I'd actually don't know how anyone could argue that Bach's not a genius or that. I mean, you can have subjective taste and go, well, I don't like Bach as much as I don't like Mozart or whatever. But I think on any objective reading, and also if you look at say the influence of Bach, you have to say that that person is of great value. Now I don't really know much about Bach's personal life, but I feel like would the world be a better place if we didn't have Bach's music because he was an asshole? I would argue no. Mm. And so that's the thing at at the end of Tar, you know, it kind of poses the question like, well, is the world – better off because Lydia Tarr is, you know, not at Berlin or, mm. you know. So, it, but real, there's no easy answer to it. Um, mm. And, again, that's what makes good art. Mm. I've just been reading Anna Funder's new book. Mm, me um, too. Wife to- yeah, oh,
1: right, yep. okay. Yeah, I'm only about a third through. So, and I find, like, it's so weird. You know how we often have that thing where you start reading about a subject and then suddenly it turns yeah. up everywhere? I mean, I've been looking forward to reading Wifedom for a while because it combines a couple of my favourite things, gender-based rants. <laughs> and, um, and also just what Fund has done with this book is she's done a deep dive into Eileen, George Orwell's wife, who – is sort of like this shadowy presence through his writing career but was, you know, basically raised his chickens and goats, looked after him. Put his meals on the table. Put his meals on the table, cleaned out the toilet. There's this horrendous scene where she's up to her knees in human excrement basically and he's like, I feel faint, I can't do this. So she's like, (laughs) like, "Uh, all right, George, yeah, I'll do it then, shall I? (laughs) And she's like not whiny. And... What Anna has done is just gently extricate her and kind of—it's like an architect, uh, it's like an archaeological dig. Like she's got like a little paintbrush and she's finding traces of Eileen. She's found, you know, some letters that she wrote to her best friend, and she's also assessing the way Eileen has been treated in biographies of Orwell, which is that she's been largely dismissed in her role, minimised. His poor behaviour has been minimised by, you know, traditionally um, male biographers. And just the job that's been done on this woman is quite profound. So like in his book, Homage to uh, Catalonia, which I've not read, thank God Anna Fonda has, um, which is a which is Orwell's account, you know, of his crazy brave mission to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War. (laughs) Eileen was there with him the whole time and he's never, he doesn't mention her by name at any point of of his own book about it. (laughs) And she took a lot of risks and also subbed all of his copy and typed everything up, including the manuscripts for that book, which as she typed it she must have been like, you arsehole. But maybe (laughs) maybe she she wasn't
0: because, again, the standards of the day, you know, were such that and maybe that's why some of the biographers didn't really think about it because it wasn't something that people thought about. But, I mean, I guess it also Uh, goes back to – say, Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, right? It's the same kind of argument, which is she's making the argument that for a woman to reach her creative potential, you have to have space carved out for you. But actually anyone does. And so the reason that your Barks and your Orwells and people like that have been able to achieve these great things is because they have had space carved out for them to enable them to do it, whether in, you know, centuries past it was a patron who Mm -hmm. paid for you to be off, you know, doing whatever you were doing. Yep. Um, Or whether it's that you were, you know, had a wife to to look after stuff. And
1: realistically, I mean, Virginia, Wolf did have a wife. She had Leonard Wolf, who typed her manuscripts, who made her lunch, who, you know, fished her out of the, you know, of the, I was going to say pond, but that's terrible. Like, I mean, literally that is what happened so, like, bad. But, like, you know, he looked after her Mm. in a way that wives look after artistic husbands. And so she is like an outlier, essentially. So I Reading the Orwell book
0: made me wonder because Anna Funder dips in and out of, um, you know, her own present day life um, and talking about you know mental load, household load, and various bits and pieces. It made me wonder: Do you think that this is such a broad question? But do you think that marriage has a future? Because (laughs) because people keep. You know, you've written a whole book about the way that, you know, in heterosexual households, division of labour continues to be unequal and it continues to favour men. So the question is then why do women keep signing up to it? Because women must get something out of it. Like, Mrs Orwell, what was she there for? Like, Maybe it was that she didn't have choice, she didn't have options, again, as was often the case in Mm. in decades gone past. You didn't have the choice to just go, oh, well, I'm out of here because you didn't have your own means. Um, You had children to look after. It was a stigma attached to it and so forth. But that's not the case today. So I guess what's the future of it?
1: Well, I think that marriage is sort of based on an economics um, premise that has – not age that well, (laughs) like, because, you know, in the old days when there was a much more prescribed division of labour between paid work and unpaid work, right, like so you sign up, get married to a dude who is then responsible for earning enough income to support your family while you keep things going going on. Yeah. Yeah. But now, you know, women are also economically uh, are also bringing in income to the house but haven't quite relinquished yeah. a you know a proportionate share of the domestic work that is unpaid so we we're, we're, we're not as good at measuring unpaid work yeah. because we don't pay for it so like that's one of the most important ways that you can measure work is yeah. by like paying for it so i think that that is i mean i think it's absolutely a structural part of female frustration with with the institution of mm. marriage, for sure. But I also think, like, it's it's a bizarre and outdated set of obligations on men as well. Like, I just think that the idea that you're only really properly undertaking your role as, you know, a husband or a father if you are spending a lot of time away from the home earning money, like, is kind of like a bit of a yeah. shit proposition as well. Like,
0: yeah, and I'll and say that... I've just been reading a few things recently that's made me realise really how actually recent these developments are. Like, you know, that in our lifetime if women got married and they worked for the public service, they were expected to relinquish their job. Like That's really, that amazes me to think Mm. that that was so recent. The generation ahead of us, women written up in the paper as Mrs. Jeremy Storer and Mrs. Bill Smith today recorded Mm. a podcast together and it was Mm. all you were known by your husband's name. So you've married someone called Bill Smith now? (laughs) (laughs) Shit, it's been a while, hasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, obviously. The other area where I've been thinking about this art monster thing but it's not really art is in relation to this documentary I watched called Navalny, which I think might have won the best doco Oscar last year or the year before. It's about Alexei Navalny who's a Russian opposition leader. He's currently in prison. Mm. Um, And it was a kind of fly-on-the-wall doco that follows, I guess, the period leading up to his return to Russia and he was arrested at the Mm. airport and remains in prison. Mm. And so it was one of those things where, so he was, you know, an anti-corruption crusader, anti-Putin, mm. and mm. so forth. Very, very dangerous, and mm. there had been, you know, attempts on his life, and and mm. you know, he has a, had a wife and had kids and all the rest of it. And again, like everything is secondary to the political fight, mm. and so it's incredibly brave because you want people who stand up, Mm. you know, to these things and and for these um, causes. But then also at the individual level, I kept thinking, man, like it's not just your sacrifice, it's you're asking that sacrifice of your wife and your children Uh as well, Mm. you know, like it's big.
1: Yeah. So what is our way of accounting for, and this brings us back to the art monsters, what is our way of accounting for individual misfortune? Like is it okay in order to enjoy the works of Orwell that Eileen basically is up to her knees in shit her whole life and never gets remembered?
0: Well, no, it would be best if the contribution was noted and remembered, like obviously. (laughs) But But do I think that we should cancel George Orwell um, because he was a man of his times? No.
1: No, I don't think, like I'm not. I'm not really pro cancellation in general I, uh, and I think having more information is always the yeah, best solution, right? Definitely. And I think like in some ways humanity over the arc of history I hope takes care of this stuff by yeah. producing an afunder who will go and read up and expose this just like, you know, Claire Wright did. In one of my favorite works of history about the Eureka Stockade, she went and wrote a historical account of the Eureka story, only putting the women back into it. Like, <laughs> and yeah, that, it's just it's a really great lesson in the fallibility of history and the way history is written at the time, mm. and the value of going back and having a second look because history is sort of never really finished, is it? Like, I mean, and we can now, you know, look back at historical events and see how they were recorded and understand that there were flaws in what we thought was an objective approach at the time. So there's sort of no such thing as objectivity, which is sort of what Claire Dederer is arguing in this Art Monsters book. I just remembered a story that Julia Baird told me once about um, when she was researching her excellent book um, about Queen Victoria and it's always stuck with me because it's just – It's a really great demonstration of the subjectivity of, you know, history and the way people are portrayed. She told the story, I think it was a book written by um, some other chick who was interested in how Queen Victoria acquired her reputation for being sort of a bit chilly and not, not very motherly and all this sort of thing. And... She looks at the official collection of Queen Victoria's letters which were um, collated and published after her death um, upon the commission of her son. And the son appointed these two gentlemen of the court to do the editing of the letters and to choose the letters that would be included and essentially neither of them was very interested in, you know, the triviality of women's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So most of the letters are either to um, Queen Victoria from male monarchs or from her to them. And they've completely gone past, you know, all of the fond correspondence that she had with Queen Sophia of Spain about, you know, their children and all that sort of stuff, absolutely not included. And so that, Kind of contributed to the public's understanding of who this woman was because her correspondence had been edited by a pair of people with absolutely no interest in you know, bullshit that women talk about. So then, you know, people assumed that she wasn't interested in that either. Yeah, so, that
0: was and that's how Anna, I think, has found out some of the stuff about yeah. Elaine O'Shaughnessy, isn't her name, I think it's her mm-hmm. name, is letters between her and one of her good friends. Yeah. In which she talks a lot about I mean, and it does illuminate Orwell and, you know, their marriage and,
1: yep. um, and you do yeah. get a bit of an answer to the question, what the hell was she doing there? Um, in that correspondence too. Because she's so intelligent and kind of funny, you can tell that she's sort of there. She's there for the intellectual stimulation for sure. And she's like, I mean, he did some shocking things like shagging her friends and, you know, they were on holiday somewhere and he sort of asked her um, permission to go and visit one of the local prostitutes. It was just like, yeah, it was, yeah. And she's like, I've, <laughs> I've got some of your typing to do, you know. <laughs> but like, so maybe in that era, having that level of intellectual stimulation in your marriage is something you wouldn't necessarily expect as a woman of the time. So maybe you're kind of like, well. At least we're talking. Yeah, at least it's fun and interesting maybe.
0: Before we're out of time, I just wanted to mention a podcast I've listened to, which is about a genuine um, monster actually, but it was so well done and I just wanted to mention it for, for one particular reason. It's called Hannah's Story and it's not something I would have naturally chosen to listen to, but Lisa Miller recommended to me and said you should listen to this. It's really very, very good. It's about... Hannah Clark, who was the woman in Brisbane with the three children oh. who the husband, Rowan Baxter, killed. Yeah, I'm not recommending that this is a podcast that everyone should listen yeah. to because the content obviously is pretty hard going. But the reason that it was, it, it's been done by um, two um, journalists at Nine News Brisbane, mm. Jess Lodge and Melissa Downs. The reason mm. it's compelling and could be worth a listen for some people is that you know how when you see a crime of this nature happen, they'll often I'm be actually on, on the edge of tears even just thinking, thinking about, about that. You'll see a headline and it'll say something like, he, he seemed like a nice bloke, says neighbor. And then there'll Ooh. be a huge outcry people will go, don't you dare call that monster a nice bloke? I get where that outrage is coming from, but I also get what the headline's about. And it's a clumsy and unfortunate way of trying to get to the bottom of how on earth does something like this happen mm. because people are so baffled by yeah. how has this you know, monstrous crime or this person been there in plain sight the whole time. Mm. And so what this podcast does very well is – It doesn't really answer the question about, I mean, it's called Hannah's story for a reason because it's from her end. So it doesn't really get to the bottom of why does a man do this? Because I think essentially that's unknowable because it's such Mm. an unfathomable crime that you Mm. can't ever really understand. It's an act of madness to do Mm. something like that. But what is interesting is they portray in great detail through conversations with her brother, with her parents, with her friends, with Mm. people they went to the gym with, what was kind of going on and all of these little things that in hindsight when everyone added together, they were like, yeah, actually that paints a disturbing picture. Mm. But in isolation and over a period of time, it was like the frog in boiling water thing, yeah. no one could really identify how dangerous he was and the situation was. Yeah. There wasn't physical violence in the household, but there was a lot of other coercive control kind of behaviour. So these journos have done really incredible job of I thought it was the best explanation I've heard kind of unpacking what a situation like this, you know, can actually look like. And also, you know, full credit to her parents who sound just like really lovely, amazing people Mm. and her family and everyone who have really honestly talked about, you know, what actually occurred. So like I say, it's not something for everyone, but if that's an area that you're interested in, it really is very illuminating to hear all of that context brought to it. And it goes some way, I think, to helping explain, um, you know, that, that question that everyone's always left with at these times, yeah. which is why.
1: Yeah, I, mean, and, and and I mean, in lots of ways that's kind of what Helen Garner has spent her non-fiction career doing, right, is actually squarely facing the most terrible crimes, you know, and looking at how... any human could be capable of behaving that way. And I think one of the big issues or realities around um, domestic violence is what happens when a person changes that you think that you know and this sort of strange behaviour starts to escalate. In that situation, when you're in a relationship and someone that you love is changing, you've got a kind of investment in it not being real like yeah do you know what I mean like particularly if you've got kids you're kind of like well I've got to be an optimist about you know yeah, um, or you're being manipulated, yeah. and you don't actually see it. Yeah. you can't actually see
0: it yeah. till you can kind of get you yeah. know out of it, and then you bring a bit more clarity to it. And mm. that's one of the things they explain, you know, really well um, mm. in this in this podcast. So anyway, I don't really want to end uh, this no. pod on that uh, such terribly untrue note. So can I just mention one other thing before we um, zip off? There's a documentary on ABC Ivy called Falou. It was oh yeah, I
1: haven't watched that. Yeah, Is it good.
0: So it was great. It's a two parter. So it was controversial, and there was a lot of talk about it. In the ABC see delayed airing it and so forth and it's up now it's looking what was at, the delay oh it was there was just back and forth editorial sort of things Israel Folau wasn't participating and oh, okay. so they were making sure it was right. fair and balanced and all of the rest of it so it's basically about the football player Israel Falau, who you mm. might remember yeah, yeah. Oh, um, God, big controversy yeah. Yeah. around yep. him and some remarks that he made relating to his Christian faith and it kind of unpacks Who is this guy? What was his career? What was the controversy that undid him? And Mm. what are the roots of it? The reason that it works really, really well is kind of relates to what we've been talking about earlier, which is the beauty of bringing nuance to things Mm. in a non judgy way. Mm. And so they go through and they explain the importance of Christian faith in Pacific Islands religion Mm. and his family background and his Mm. broader community background and where he's coming from. And then, you know, putting that up against the context of his career but then what's going on more broader socially and they have this vast array of voices talking about him people from within his community people from within the footballing community and they paint this very interesting picture where you feel like you're getting a really good 360 exploration of all mm. of the issues in that thing in a non-judgmental way. Um, and so I thought that it was a very interesting um, and engaging piece of work.
1: Mm, okay, I'm yeah. definitely going to watch that. You know um, mean, you love a
0: sports doco. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, my God. I've just spent some time in Adelaide and um, two things, three things actually, that are probably still on when this podcast goes up. Illuminate, which is um, sort of festival of lights in um, Adelaide. There's uh, a work of art happening at night times in the um, botanical gardens, which is right right in the middle of the city, one of like a, it's a beautiful garden. But by night, at the moment, it's hosting this um, installation called Resonate, which is just so magical. Like it's gorgeous. So if you're anywhere near Adelaide, go to that. And if you're anywhere near Adelaide before July the twenty third, go to the South Australian Museum and see this exhibition called Relics. It is the most joyous thing I just couldn't get the smile off my face so and I know you you're giving me the wrap-up face and no, I'm fair fine. enough so Lego Masters 2020 was won by these guys uh, called Alex and Patrick yeah I think um they were the kind of like they look like the roadies from you know <laughs> um Aerosmith or something like they're just long hair just like such sweet guys very very funny and they have put together this exhibition <laughs> it's all lego minifigures the idea is that humanity has died out and the world is now populated by lego <laughs> minifigures who have built communities <laughs> in human refuse right and so like there's a an old vw beetle that's all completely falling apart and it's hooked up to a fuel drum and the boot is popped, and inside the boot is this civilization of minifigures, <laughs> and they've been living off the fuel in the fuel drum, but it's just run out. So there's a civil war happening <laughs> in there, and it's so funny. Like there's, there's like little gags everywhere. They've built themselves into every scene, so you kind of have to spot them, and it's so joyous. There's like an old fifties kitchen and an old fridge that has been rebuilt as a um, Lego minifigure cryogenics lab, <laughs> and so there's all these little minifigs in kind of like jars of fluid and like running around in lab coats my god it's adorable it is so cool and I just you know I took Kate and she was just mesmerized and they've got this little you know exercise for kids where you've got to find this and find that and you know oh my god there's an old jukebox that's got like all of these tiny music venues built into it like jazz clubs and like (laughs) Oh it's just a delight. So don't go see that and also Mary Poppins is in Adelaide at the moment. My kids went to see it and oh, we're yeah. just absolutely absolutely enchanted. Yeah, I've heard absolutely
0: incredible things about yeah. that. Um in fact, Lisa Miller was telling me you've got to get down to Melbourne to see it because I missed it in Sydney. What's well, it's I now, to so, go to Adelaide yeah. yeah. Okay, good. All right. All right, to it's
1: catching next time. All right. See ya.